On the 18th of March, 1314, on the tiny island of the Ile aux Juifs in the River Seine, Jacques de Molay, the last Grand Master of the Order of the Knights Templar, was tied to a stake so that he could be burnt alive for heresy under the orders of King Philip IV, and with the complicity of the Pope. And as the wind picked up and the flames rose and lapped around the now old man who had already suffered excruciating torture and seven years of imprisonment, his voice rang out strong and clear over the noise of the gathered crowd and the sounds of agony from the other two Templar leaders who were being executed. And he cursed the king and his family and the Pope for committing this sin and called to Christ to prove the order's innocence and bring its persecutors to the judgment of God. And that curse has gone down in history for coming true because before the end of the year, both the king and the Pope were dead. You are listening to Pan Am, a podcast about Paris, the people who've lived here, the events that have taken place and the traces they've left behind. Today, we are walking in the footsteps of the Templars, looking for any vestiges they've left behind, including the legacy of that terrible curse. So come with me as we go back some 700 years to medieval Paris to find out how a family, once considered miraculous and blessed, were undone, and how their demise not only saw the end of their dynasty, but plunged France into a war for more than a hundred years. Let us begin with the Templars. Who were they? Why were they burned? And what about this curse? So the Templars were founded in 1118. The Order of the Knights Templar was created to protect Christian pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem during the Crusades. They were a holy order of soldiers, but also monks. So they were like soldier monks. And they were recognised by the white tunics that they wore, which had a big red cross on them. Now, thanks to the donations of the pilgrims, they became very wealthy. It's because pilgrims would give them money so they could have safe passage to Jerusalem. And in 1140, they were able to buy land in what is now the very expensive Marais, but back then was a rather marshy, um, boggy place. Over the next century, they cultivated this land and built an impressive fortified domain which had about 4,000 inhabitants living within its walls. This was all enclosed um, by fortified walls and there was a big watchtower and the only way in was over a drawbridge. They had essentially created a sort of city within a city. But their power and their wealth was disturbing both to those who were in power, such as the king, and also people who were in their debt. And another problem was there. You see, their role was being increasingly put into question because in 1187, Jerusalem was captured by Muslim forces under Saladin and there was really no need for the Templars as no one was going to Jerusalem. So their original raison d'etre had been removed. But they continued to survive and thrive because they'd essentially become bankers, international bankers. They'd use their connections uh, to create this system of money lending and sharing and they even had an early version of cheques which you could use. But then in the early 14th century, King Philip IV, known as the Fair for his good looks, could no longer 
tolerate them. He couldn't put up with this state within a state, just sort of outside of what was then medieval Paris, which was essentially concentrated on the Ile de la Cité. And it didn't hurt that they had a lot of money. So perhaps wanting to get his hands on some of their vast wealth and solve his not inconsiderate financial problems and also wanting to just get control, he decided to ruthlessly dismantle the order. Now, in a remarkable act of cunning and coordination, he managed to keep his plans secret from the Templars because, of course, they were very powerful and well-connected. And then he put them into action. In the pre-dawn morning of the inauspicious day of Friday the 13th October 1307, King Philip, who may have been known to be good-looking, but I'm not sure how fair he was in the other sense of the word, sent his men to arrest all of the Knights Templar throughout France. He had them imprisoned on charges of heresy, then, under excruciating torture, and I'm going to spare you the details because medieval torture is really incredibly gruesome, but essentially they were forced to confess to such things as practising in homosexuality, uh, denying Jesus Christ as the prophet, idolatry, curiously to worship worshipping a mysterious mummified body in the shape of a cat's head, which apparently represented Satan. Quite strange. A lot of them actually died during this torture and the rest of them confessed to these crimes and many more, which is not really very surprising. And this included Jacques de Molay, who was the Grand Master of the Order, and who was also incidentally godfather to Philip's son. So he was really quite a powerful and important man, but even his connections to the king didn't save him at all. He confessed to these crimes, and then he later revoked this confession in front of the king. Now, originally, the king had sentenced the Templars to life in prison, but following this, he sentenced them to be burned at the stake instead. And so today, here on what was once the Ile aux Juifs, the Jewish island, so named after the executions of what we can only presume were the Jewish people that took place here, it was renamed to the Temple Island, and today it's the Square de Vergalon. It's very green and quite pleasant to be honest it's in the middle of the Seine it's just below the Pont Neuf and there's just a simple plaque here today that reminds us that Jacques de Molay was executed here but of course the execution was one thing the curse is what we're interested in today so he curses the king his family and the pope and then just 33 days after calling for divine justice Pope Clement V does indeed die it must have caused quite the shudder to run down the king's spine. But it seems the Pope was suffering from intestinal cancer. And unfortunately, he sought a treatment that might well have been the end of him. He was prescribed crushed emeralds, which was only obviously available to the most wealthy and seemed to have had the same effect as swallowing glass. So needless to say, he died in what I can only presume was much discomfort. But the curse was not done with him. A popular story says that while his body was lying in state, a thunderstorm developed during the night and lightning struck the church where his body lay, igniting the building. Apparently the fire was so intense that when it was extinguished, the body of the Pope was almost completely destroyed. It's still not over. Well, at least not in literature. Dante even reserves a spot for him in his inferno. 
In Canto 19, Dante and Virgil have arrived in the eighth circle of hell. Here they find those guilty of simony, which I didn't know what that meant, but it means that they use their position in the church for personal monetary gain. The souls of these sinners are upside down and their feet are on fire. One of them suffers more than all the others, and Dante speaks to him. He is Pope Nicholas III, but he says that soon a new pope will take his place and he will suffer even greater tortures. That pope is, of course, Clement V. OK, so that was a pope. But then, seven months after the execution of the Grand Master, his fateful curse came true for King Philip because he died. Now, how he died is a little bit confusing and... Uh, a bit gruesome in itself, um, as one would expect from a cursed death, obviously. Now, he'd been out hunting and had an accident followed by what I've seen described as a cerebral incident or a seizure. Now, this seizure either caused him to fall or he fell, which caused a seizure. So there's lots of different versions of this, but he was out hunting and this accident happens. Now he's brought back, it doesn't kill him, he's brought back and then he suffers for some weeks and he slowly loses his appetite, apparently he's plagued by this unquenchable thirst and he he starts to lose the ability to speak, his limbs atrophy and finally he dies at the age of 46 on the 29th of November 1314, so before the year is over. Curiously, or sort of spookily, after he died, the king, who was often, he's often described as having a quite uh, cold look, quite a sort of staring person, and, and quite a cold person as well. And he had this sort of stare which would unsettle people. Well, apparently after he died, they were unable to close his eyes. They just stayed open. And so they decided to blindfold the king so not to see his unsettling, lifeless eyes. So these two unexpected deaths definitely gave credence to the Templar's curse. But remember, it wasn't just the king and the pope who needed to worry. King Philip's family were also named. But you see, Philip was in... A really good position. He had three sons to assure his legacy, and three sons is no mere trifle, so surely the curse would not work, right? Well, not so right, because slowly, one after the other, the sons died without an heir, and the death of his third son, who would be King of France, brought an end to their family, the Capes. It's known as the Capetian dynasty. Now, this isn't the first time a royal family has died out, but this one had been in power since 987, so a really long time, and the crown had passed seamlessly, more or less, from father to son. It was known as the Capetian miracle because they'd been in power for such a long time. But curses, it seems, trump miracles. So let's get in to Philip's sons. Let's start with the eldest, of course, and the first king. So that would be Louis X, and he was known as the Stubborn. I love the way all these kings have got, like, nicknames. Now, Louis was not a great king, by all accounts, um, or person, but never mind, because he died just 18 months after his coronation. He actually died at the Chateau de Vincennes, um, and I have an episode about the Chateau de Vincennes on Extramuros, and that was following a game of tennis. Now, apparently he loved playing tennis. This must have been an incredible game, but it was a hot day in June, and apparently he got really hot, and so after his tennis match, he went back into the chateau, and he drank some cool wine 
fine, and for some reason he died shortly afterwards. I don't know how tennis or wine or cold wine provokes death, but uh, you'll see that he the official cause of his death is often noted as pneumonia, but there were rumours that he had been poisoned, which sounds... Sounds, sounds, sounds plausible to me. Anyway, whatever the truth, Louis was finished, he was no more, and the first of Philip's sons had died. And with his death, France was thrown into a little bit of a state of confusion. You see, Louis did have a child. So remember I said that his sons die without an heir. Well, this is complicated. So Louis does have a t- child, Jeanne, a girl. But the problem was, could the crown pass to a girl? I mean... Why not? It does in other countries, including in England and even in other parts of France, what we consider France today. But there was a real problem here, and I'm afraid we're going to have to take a little detour into a salacious scandal that had happened just a few years earlier to find out why there was this problem. So it's called The Scandal of the Tower of Nell. So let's head over there now to find out more about it. So the tower is not here today, but we can go to where it once stood, which is today the Institut of France, which is where the immortals are. You know, that's where the Académie Française is. Um, It was once a formidable medieval structure. There is nothing left of it today, but just a little plaque on the side of the Institut with a drawing which tells us that it used to be here. Now, the scandal involved all of Philip IV's sons who were married to three noble-born young women from the same family, and their names were Marguerite, Blanche and Jeanne. Uh, Let's not confuse Jeanne the daughter with Jeanne the wife. So there's two Jeannes in this story. Now, it was alleged that Marguerite and Blanche had been having an affair with two knights, brothers named Gautier and Philippe Donnet. And it was discovered after the brothers were seen wearing two distinctly embroidered purses, which were gifted to Blanche and Marguerite by their sister-in-law, Isabel. And she had apparently deliberately done this. She suspected that they were having affairs. She gifted the girls these purses. These purses were designed to be worn maybe by a woman or by a man. And, you know, she had this theory that if they were, if she saw them, being worn by the brothers, then they would know, and that's exactly what happened. Now, when Philip IV found out about this, and Philip IV is quite a cold, stern, religious person, not that any king, I think, would condone this, but he was really shocked and really angry, and he didn't sweep it under the carpet. He had a very public trial and punishment of the sisters and of the brothers. So the brothers were promptly arrested, they were tortured, they confessed to their crimes, and then they were condemned to be publicly executed in really the most awful way. And I'm just going to tell you about it, so if you don't want to hear, or you have delicate, younger ears, skip forward. So... First, they were beaten, emasculated, flayed, scalded with molten lead, which was poured over them. They were dragged through the streets uh, by horses. They were then decapitated, and what was left of them was hung on the gallows and left to rot in plain sight. It was so extreme that even the most robust medieval audience, which were used to public displays of gruesome punishment, found it all a bit too much. As to Blanche and Marguerite and Jeanne, they all had their head shaved, 
enslaved and were imprisoned. It was later determined that while Jeanne knew of the fair, she didn't take part in it herself, so she was released. Whereas Blanche and Marguerite were sent to the Chateau Gaillard, whose ruins you can still visit today. They were separated. Marguerite was the Dauphine, meaning she was the future Queen of France and married to Louis, and she received the harshest punishment. She was imprisoned at the top of the tower in a room which was exposed to the very cold weather, and she died maybe from exposure or hunger later in 1315, so she didn't last very long at all. But there were rumours that she'd been poisoned or even strangled to death. Her sister Blanche did a little bit better. She was being kept in a lower room, so she wasn't as cold, and she actually stayed in the Chateau Gaillard for 10 years and then was sent to a convent where she lived until her death. So why was the scandal of the Tour de Nel so important? Well, I mean, everyone knew about it. Uh, it was pretty embarrassing, that's for sure. But of course, it put into question the paternity of Jeanne, the daughter of Louis X, and... And and this meant that she really, they couldn't allow her to be queen. They couldn't let Jeanne be a queen if we weren't sure if she was really the daughter of Louis X. And so the French put out a royal decree that basically said that women were not allowed to inherit the, the throne. They were not allowed to rule. And that was that. That was that for Jeanne and all future queens. There's never been a queen of France who rules in her own right, unlike in other countries. It does beg the question, what would have happened had Jeanne been a boy, we can only presume something unpleasant to him. Anyway, although Jeanne was Louis's only child at the time of his death, there was still hope. His new wife was pregnant uh, and five months later she gave birth to... <gasps> a boy! Hurrah! The crown was saved. John I was the new king of France from his birth. However, he has the rather dubious honour of being the only king in French history to reign from birth, to reign for his whole life, and to have had the shortest reign, just five days from the 15th of November 1316 to the 20th of November 1316. As to why he died, well, I mean, infant mortality was pretty high, so it's possible that it was just a tragedy of the time. But, like his father, there were rumours that he too had been murdered. The crown then passed to Philip's next son, Philip V, also known as the Tall, although I don't know how tall he was. I have tried to look, but I have not found it written anywhere. Apparently, the average height at this time was around 1 metre 50, so that's about 5 foot, which I personally feel is just about right. I mean, the perfect height. So maybe Philip was a little bit taller than this. Maybe he was a metre 60. Who knows? Maybe he was two metres tall. If you know, let me know. Um, so Philip was, by all accounts, uh, more capable than his brother. Uh, the most capable of all the three. Everyone seemed to like him best. And he managed to do a little bit better than Louis. He stayed on the throne for around five years, but he died of dysentery at the age of 29. And, like his brother before him, he had no heir. He had only daughters, so that was no good. No women allowed in this boys' club. And so the crown passed to the third and final son of Philip, that was Charles IV, also known as the Fair. Now, he too managed to hold on to the crown for this time about six years, but then... Alas, he too died, also at the Chateau of Vincennes in 1328 at the age of 33. But wait, in an extraordinary repetition of history, his wife was also pregnant. The French court held their collective breath. But a few months later, she gave birth to... A girl. 
And so what next? Well, Philip did have another child. Remember his daughter Isabel, who helped uncover the adultery of her brother's wives? Now, as a woman, she could not lay claim to the throne, but she did have a son. Surely this boy, who was the grandson of Philip IV and nephew to the last king, had a good claim to the throne. But it wasn't so easy. You see, Isabel was married to Edward II, the former king of England, and her son was Edward III, the current king of England. If the French crown passed to him, France would be ruled by an English king. And the French, needless to say, did not like that idea and were not in favour. And the English were like, yeah, that sounds about right. And that squabble would go on to become the Hundred Years' War. So whether you believe it was due to Jacques de Molay's curse, divine retribution or a saucy sex scandal, the caption dynasty were no more. Who was next? Well, it wasn't the English, spoiler alert. It was the Valois. Hurrah! I'm sure they'll do better. But of course, they don't. Never mind, here come the Bourbons. I'm sure they'll be long and fruitful, but oh, oh no, no, it doesn't work out either for them. Speaking of which, the Bourbons, of course, finished up with Louis XVI. Uh, there, was, there is a story that says that when Louis XVI was executed at the Place de la Concorde, someone rushed forward, dipped their handkerchief into his blood and cried out, Jacques de Molay, tu es vengé. Jacques de Molay, you are avenged. Maybe his curse had finally come to an end. So what are we left with today in terms of the Templars? Really, not very much. If you want to walk in their footsteps, it's going to be hard-pressed. But you're going to head over to the Marais to start off with, and especially the Haute-Marais um, area. This is where they once had their impressive fortress. This is where they once had their impressive fortress, which after they were demolished, well, after they were disbanded, the their land, their fortress was handed over to their nemesis. This is the Hospitaliers, and they inhabited it for some time. It was later used as a prison, notably for the royal family after they were moved from the Tuileries Palace. But then it was demolished by Napoleon, who didn't want it becoming a site of pilgrimage to the royal family. The final blow for the Templar Tower came in the 19th century during the renovations of Napoleon III and Haussmann. And so today, the only traces of the Templars can be found in the names of the street. We've got Rue du Temple, the Metro Temple and the Carreau du Temple. These are all tributes to them. And if you go to the town hall of the third arrondissement and you stand just in front of it and look down, you will be standing where the Great Keep used to be. And if you look closely on the ground as people hurry past to go shopping or whatever it is they're up to, you'll see marked on the ground the outline of the Temple Keep. So this is really the last places you can see the vestiges of the Templars. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed researching it um, and kind of delving into medieval Paris. I read quite a lot of books. I'll put up all the sources on my website as ever. Um, I also got involved in some media. There is a fantastic uh, podcast called Gone Medieval. So if you like medieval stuff, check it out. It's really, really excellent. And there's also... Um, this story of the Cursed Kings has been fictionalised and apparently it's the book that inspired Game of Thrones. So if you like Game of Thrones, then you really need to get into this. It's called The Cursed Kings. It's There are six books and it tells you the whole story, obviously fictionalised, but it was there is some sort of elements of fact and research in it. So who needs dragons when you have the French medieval kings? So check that out. That's by, hold on, let me just check his name for you. 
because it's just here um on my shelf by Maurice Duron. Apparently they turned it into a television series, but I hear that that was not so great. So I'm really enjoying that. Um, and yeah, all, all this and more. Now, if you're a patron subscriber, I've also done a complimentary episode which also deals with the Accursed Kings and the origins of the Hundred Years War and that's on Extra Muros and that's all about the Chateau of Vincennes so that's up for you and I'm also trying to get up some videos for you but guys I'm so sorry I'm a bit behind the schools and the creche have been shut because well you know why everything's shut. So um, I'm being a bit delayed because, frankly, my daughter, who is two, uh, her commitment to medieval history is frankly lacking. So thank you so much to all the patrons. I really appreciate it. Your help is so important keeping this show going. Thank you, Kevin, my newest patron. That is really fantastic. And if you're not a patron, just thanks for listening. It's absolutely great. And if you like the show, why not leave a review or just send me a message or tell a friend? Christopher wasn't able to edit this episode, so I'm sorry you've had to make do with my inferior editing skills, but hopefully he'll be back with us soon. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye.